that back in 1981 or 82 and it turns out this song came out just a few short years ago now if you held a gun to my head and said brian point on the globe where belarus is where's belarus brian tell me the answer now my brains are outside my head sounds like the lead singer of depeche mode yeah no it's not david gahan it is it's Molshot Doma. Uh, they are a post-punk band from Minsk in, in Belarus. They only formed in 2017. And here's the thing about going retro is almost everyone who does retro gets it a little bit wrong. Yeah. Even when you love their spirit and appreciate their drive and their love, Interpol comes to mind. It's not the same. That song could have come from 1982 from the Eastern Bloc, and it's so good. I absolutely love it. What's it called? I don't know. I can't read Minsk. Skiing or Belarusian <laughs> or whatever it is. It is the Brian Oak Show, episode 257 of the pot. No, 240. No, 70. 274. Four. Yep. It's going to be one of those shows, isn't it? Yes, it is. Sorry about that. In fact, that leads to my next topic. But before we get there, I want to say hello. I'm Brian Oak. That is Sean Bernard. We've got a great guest on the show today that we'll get to shortly. Uh, and we here are here in the Smart Start MN studios. Before I ask my sort of philosophical question of the day and we get to our guest, let's go ahead and thank Smart Start MN. Without them, we are nothing, quite literally. We're not here in these studios. The podcast probably never gets off the ground. But with them, we are able to provide the message of what they do should you drink and drive, should someone you know or hold dear or at least even are vaguely concerned about do the same thing, they will lose their license. They will need to find a way back into their vehicle. And Smart Start MN is Minnesota's original ignition interlock company. That means legally, through things they worked out through with the local Congress and the state, they will get you back into your car. Yeah, and it's already affordable, and compared to not being able to drive for six months, it's such a good deal, and we can make an even better deal if you go to smartstartmn.com. Slash the Brian Oak Show. That'll get you 20% off the installation of the ignition interlock. So I've been doing a little online research lately, Sean, which one has to take with a grain of salt, right? Because there's a lot of misinformation. Even if you go to WebMD, that kind of thing, you start to feel symptoms about a certain thing. A lot of people will go try to self-diagnose on the internet, and that is one of the worst things you could possibly do. Talk to a professional. But one of the things I did learn over the last few days, male menopause does not exist. However... I am having what feels like the the hot flashes that every woman that's roughly my age yeah. has described as going into menopause. Yeah. Now, there are reasons that men will go into this kind of thing, but male menopause, because we have different plumbing, it, it's not an actual thing. But there are things that can make you, as a middle-aged man, sweat unnecessarily. Meat sweats? That's got to be number uh, one. Well, that, that's <laughs> among it, but there are actual other <laughs> physical reasons, despite the amount of meat you're ingesting. <laughs> I, I The last three days, I can't stop sweating. And the weather's been very mild. It's yeah. been lovely. 
right now, like I'm I'm sweating like in a way that I need I'm gonna need a towel. I'm I need to need someone to Now you're that guy. Blo- what do you mean? Well No, not like not like like no, not like diva guy. No, no, no. I just I can't stop sweating. And I mean other than meat sweats or just being old and fat, and I'm not calling you fat, I'm calling me oh, fat. Oh, you were looking right at me um, with a, an intent. Have you have you ever had that thing where you're not doing anything and for no good reason you start sweating like it's ninety degrees outside? Every once in a while it happens. I am not a sweater. Even when I exercise, I don't oh, sweat see, until I I'm am. done. Until I'm done exercising. And then it then all comes pouring out. It's weird. It's like the tap is released and look oh. out. Look out, children. Suddenly it got gross. Kids, stay in school, don't do drugs, and try to stay in better health than either Sean or myself. <laughs> Coming up next, we are going to be joined by a Minnesota music legend, uh, Robert Wilkinson, who has been in all the bands, has played all the music, and has done it for a very long time. And now, as of just a couple short days ago, is entering a new period of genuine freedom in his life. And Sean and I are both bitter because we'll never be able to retire like Robert Wilkinson. We'll talk to him coming up next. Now, I know that Robert's been in a lot of different bands, has has composed and performed and expressed his musical muse in many different ways. But going back to the early 80s, when I was first discovering music, I had a good buddy named Tony, the same guy who turned me on to Prince, the same guy that I turned on to Husker Du. He found a couple of 45 inches, uh, little seven inch singles, right? 45 RPMs. And he's like, have you heard this band? And you know, he was in Blaine. I was in Coon Rapids. We mm. rarely made it to the city, get to getting to see good shows. And we heard a few different songs by the Flame and O's early on, but there was one in particular that always stuck with me. And Robert Wilkinson is the main brain behind this band, although he had some wonderful collaborators in the band. But this particular song has been a part of my life for Shall we do the math? Ooh, 40? Over 40 years. Ooh. I first heard this song, I believe, in 81 or 82, I believe, is when it came out. And you know what? It's never gone out of my playlist. This is Minnesota Musical Legacy, the Flaminos with Stop on The Brian Oak Show.
a song that is so much of its time and so much a part of the fabric of what the Minneapolis sound meant. I'm not talking about Prince's Minneapolis sound, which obviously was very important, but there were many other aspects through the early late 70s, early 80s, but then into the mid 80s. I mean, there was this thing. I consider myself, despite the fact that I was largely trapped in Coon Rapids, to be very, (laughs) very fortunate to have been in this particular sphere at that particular juncture in space-time. I love that song so much. Flamin' O's with Stop on the Brian Oak Show, and I'm lucky enough to be sitting across from the man who wrote that song and executed it, <laughs> along with his friends and a great producer, Robert Wilkinson. Robert, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, glad to have you. When you wrote that song, and we have a lot of questions to get to, so let's sure. not rush anything. Sure. When you wrote that song, you know, as a young, burgeoning songwriter, it's on your second album, so you've already got a little a little steam going, right? Sure. You've already got some miles beneath your feet and on your strings, right? Absolutely. But at that point, when that comes out, I mean, do you know when you've like written a song and you've even got the core of it, even before it's in its, in its finished state, can you tell when you have something great? Because I'm not saying that's a universally recognized masterpiece. Right. I don't believe in best. Right. But for me, right. that song's been a part of my life for more oh. than 40 years, and it will be a part of my life until I die. That's awesome. Again, and that's why I'm asking you, like, do you ever get that feeling when you've written something, whether or not it ultimately comes to fruition, do you ever have that feeling like, that one's pretty fucking good? Yes. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for that. Um, it's interesting, the songwriting process itself. Um, I'm pretty intuitive and instinctive about the songwriting process. There's not a lot of, um, I don't try to overthink it or overanalyze or over intellectualize songwriting. It usually starts with some guitar chords. Mm-hmm. Uh, it usually starts with me sitting around with my guitar. So music comes, like like chords or progression comes before lyrics for you? Sometimes, okay. most okay. of the time. Yeah. There will be times when I'll be sitting in the car driving or just somewhere where some words will come to, come to me or a line or two. And in that moment, I'll have to try and write those down. You know that's dangerous when you're driving, right? I do not do that when I'm actually driving. (laughs) I will pull over. Look, I'm just trying to make sure the kids are doing the right thing out there, Absolutely. And let me please emphasize, (laughs) do not try and write your song lyrics while you are driving. Yeah, stay in school, don't do drugs, and don't write your song lyrics down while you're driving. (laughs) But occasionally, some words or a couple lines will come first, and and I'll try and uh, find some music to go around that. Um, But... What seems to be more natural for me anyway and to uh, to flow better is when I, I'm sitting around, um, I'm playing some chords, and I like the way these sound, and I mm. just like the way they go together. And then maybe a bit of a melody will start mm. in my head that will work around these chords. And um, that's, that's probably most of the time. And that can, you know... Um, and then I'll work on it from there. And I'll tell you, uh, for me, uh, that first line of the song, mm. I'll have I'll have the chords, I'll have a really nice melody, a verse, chorus, mm-hmm. bridge, whatever. But boy, that first line has got to be, uh, how can I say it? It's really got to be a doozy. Well, it's the thesis, right? I mean, like whether we're talking about writing an essay in college or whether we're talking about writing a short story or a novel or a really great song, that opening line yes. sets the tone for everything. Yes. And some songs, if you get a great line, will start writing themselves. Things will start flowing. 
Okay. Now that's not all the time. And when I mean a great line, it doesn't have to be some kind of um, um, innovative or um, just something supernaturally cool or anything. It can just be something that fits really well with what's going on dynamically with the chords and melody and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not talking, uh, you know, uh, uh, songwriting um uh, pop songs, rock and roll and stuff like that, you know, I'm trying to probably more uh, um, get some emotion going. I'm not trying to write a great novel or, <laughs> or a great, you know, there's, yeah. to me, there's a poetry aspect to some of it. Uh, other times it's just like, I'm going to write a really fun rock and roll song and it doesn't have to, this lyrics can... They can be simple and stupid and fun, and they don't have to really mean anything. It's just the way some stuff sounds, the way it comes out of your mouth and just sounds good. It, so it's not any one kind of, you know, I don't look at, you know, for stop, it was just like uh, I had the chords and the music and and the lines started coming and ended up with uh, a pretty decent uh, power pop song, I think. I'm glad to hear it because, you know, whether we're talking about a power pop song or a hardcore song or a rock mm -hmm. and roll song or a deep ballad, the other thing that I attribute to that song, in addition to liking the story that's told, in yeah. addition to enjoying the flow of the lyrics or the, the jangly nature of the guitars, yeah. hooks matter to me right yes. and, and they, yes. they they appear in all forms of music yes frankly they appear in literature they appear in films a good hook like as you're like grooving along and all of a sudden just like yoink like you've just gotten pulled out of a lake like you're a walleye with a treble hook in your mouth <laughs> but i mean a proper hook there's a reason they call it a hook is because it drags you along whether you like it or not to me that's all of my favorite music is is filled with hooks absolutely and i i'm I'm with you on this. Yeah. I'll take a movie and throw you one of my favorite movies. Hit me. And I'll throw you the hook. You talking to me? You oh, talking yeah. to me? Yeah. Stand in front of the mirror yeah. with his oh, little yeah. like, like sliding uh, gun thing he made right there in Taxi so Driver. You talking no. to me? Yeah. I don't see anyone else fucking standing here. Who are you talking to, Robert? <laughs> so there's, when you talk about films, there's there's an example for me. And um, Sean's, Sean's De Niro face right there yeah. was a little too much. I wish we had a camera. I yeah. wish it was live. Dude, everybody sadly, has to everyone do everyone the has De Niro face. Yeah. Right. It looked like you were punched in the back. I don't know. That's what he looks like. Are you okay, dude? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a little uh, gassy. I'll no, be fine. I appreciate the effort. You get A for effort on that. Before we continue with Robert, Robert, I do have to take care of another one of our sponsor we have a do. brand new sponsor here on the brian oak show podcast and that would be our friends at moxie wealth management in particular boat joe burgess joe has recently come on board he and basically his extended clan for generations came out to our recent um patreon event yeah and they had a blast i talked to uh, joe at the event and uh, we messaged a little bit afterwards and he's like it was so cool. He stopped down. And he goes, I'm so glad I'm involved with you guys and what you're doing here. And that meant the world to me because it's nice that he's a sponsor, Yep. but it's really nice that it fits. He's this down to earth guy. He brought his family there. We got to meet a bunch of different family and friends, yep. got to meet a bunch of people that he cares about. And, uh, and I think he takes that approach with wealth management as well, that he's got a team of people there that will help you out. A lot of people are myself included are really intimidated by the financial stuff i grew up broke so didn't have that inherited wealth and understanding of how money worked how's your um, trust fund looking it's non-existent well my my dad was famous for saying if you die penniless it's perfect timing 
<laughs> and I was and whoa, I was like, Dad, what whoa. about what about the next? What about me, gener- Dad? Because I, <laughs> Bye, but, bitch. <laughs> not so much. Now, with Moxie Wealth Management, yeah. what they do is they're looking for people who have at least set the baseline, right? But now. What do you do to actually move forward? Like, let's say you retire, like someone who might be in this room, you lucky <laughs> bastard. Um, but I mean, like, you need to have a plan moving forward. And he's got a whole team of people, whether we are talking about insurance or planning or wealth management or any of that stuff. There are people involved. And as Sean and I have said from the very beginning of this podcast, we don't work with jerks. We just we refuse. He was the right fit. He's yep. a good guy, and he's got a great team in place. So if you want to know more about Moxie Wealth Management, all you have to do is go to moxiewealthmanagement.com and ask to speak to Joe or one of his team. Now, there is a disclaimer here that I have to hit, and I used to be really good at these, but now I suck at them, and maybe because my eyesight goes going. Joe Burgess is a registered representative and investment advisor representative of Securian Financial Services Incorporated Securities and Investment Advisory Services offered through Securian uh, Financial Services, Inc. Member FINRA SIPC. Northstar Resource Group is independently owned and operated. Moxie is affiliated with Northstar Resource Group and is independently owned and operated. 2701 University Avenue Southeast, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55414. Not bad. Ah, there was a couple of hiccups in there. I, I really got to practice that a little more. It is the Brian Oak Show. And before we go any further, you know, I always like to get, um, if I can, a brief bio to kind of encapsulate who someone is. Mr. Wilkinson, I did not get a bio from you, so we're going to do the super short, sharp, rapid version of this. Sure, you ready? absolutely. Where do. are you from? Where are you born? Um, I was born in Fargo, North Dakota. Got you. Uh, my mom was single at the time. Uh, she went up there to have me. We, I grew up uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa until I was 14 years old. So you're an upper Midwest guy from the get. You got it, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. absolutely. I'm proud of it. Um, um, f- when I was 14, we moved up here to Edina, which was a total culture shock. Um, but from Edina- well, you're eating so much more cake than you were in Iowa at uh, that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go there, buddy. <laughs> I, was me- I was just messing. Just been nothing no, personal. Totally, dude. Nothing personal. No, just I messing. Was, uh, I was. Uh, it was a culture shock for me. I remember walking to Southdale from where we lived in Edina to order uh, Who 45s from Musicland, anyhow, right, anyway, anywhere, things like that. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to uh, uh, Dayton's uh, um, to buy mod clothes, John Stevens, uh, mod designer. Uh, so, I mean, how old are you at this point? Like, when does, like, when does, uh, even before you pick up an instrument, at some point, music infects all of our lives, yes, right? Yes, yes. But then also, you kind of want to look the look, and you realize, and again, I'm not trying to be elitist, but at some point, most people who do what you do, or yeah. do what I do, or do it, you don't want to be like all the other squares around you, right? You, you I mean, you, wa- you yeah. want to differentiate yourself because you're trying to find your own identity. How old are you when you start buying striped pants and deciding you're going to be a different dude uh, than the people around you? Uh, 12. Okay. You know? Yeah, 12. That's uh, a pretty early realization. It took me a hell of a lot longer than that. I knew that I wanted to write songs when I was eight or nine. When did you first pick up a guitar? Um, probably when I was 11 or 12. Right on. Of course, um, I had a really uh, great and lucky childhood. Uh, My parents listened to great music, Ray Charles. I grew up listening to Elvis Presley, all the great girl groups, Ronettes, Crystals, um, all that stuff. I used to go to Danceland Ballroom in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to see Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs and the wow. Hollow Blues and uh, Holy sh- I mean, and the so McCoys. You've seen Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Yeah, the Hollow Blues, the Turtles, the wow. McCoys. 
Uh, Rick Derringer doing 17, he's 17 years old doing Hang On Sloopy. At Danceland Ballroom where my parents used to go to watch Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I was going to say, I mean, like that was the final performance of one buddy holly was it not um he was down Surf. in clear lake Iowa, yeah. oh, on the border right, down right. by mason right, city got yeah. it, got it, got it. but in any case what i'm getting at is um i knew at an early age i wanted to be a songwriter yeah. and um i also do visual art um when people would ask me when i was eight nine ten what are you going to do uh I said, i'm going to write songs and they'd say well Good luck with that, they're, you know? But they're like, what are you going to do for a living, though? Like, how yeah. are you going to pay the bills? Yeah, right. Right. So um, as I grew up, um, of course, I had was listening to all this great music, and even though at that point I hadn't decided to pick up the guitar yet or anything, I had this embedded in me as I was growing up. So I think there was, uh, it. you know, it just got into my blood and my genes, and I think it's always been there anyway. I think I was born with this DNA. In any case, of course, when the Beatles came out, that was the tipping point where I wanted a guitar and an amp, and my parents bought me my first Beatles album, they bought me my first $55 Silvertone guitar. Were they not concerned about what the hell you were doing with your life? <laughs> uh, what, I don't need you listening to these mop-top English ragamuffins and playing your dirty rock and roll music. Your parents were apparently on board. My parents were very different types of parents than most parents, most kids had. Yeah. Um, that's a whole nother story, which I'd be happy to share. But my parents... <laughs> When we uh, were in the car, we always listened to the Top 40 station. Right. So I grew up, once again, on just all this great music and at home, Ray Charles albums, things like that. But when the Beatles, uh, and I remember the Sunday night in February when we all watched Ed Sullivan and the mm. Beatles were on. Um, it was amazing. Um, I won a guitar. I got a $55 Silvertone guitar and a little funky amp. And um, I wanted to you know that was that was something i wanted to do but that the beatles were cool and everything and that was really a huge thing but when the stones hit mm. there was no that was it that was it um so i wasn't there when they first hit but my dad growing up was a huge huge bon scott era acdc fan yeah and here's how i equate those two bands they don't sound exactly the same although nope. they're both blues based and I love the Beatles more than almost anybody on oh, the planet. Sure. But there's something about rock and roll, right? Like, you don't want things to be dirty and dark and broken all the time. But rock and roll should be a little dangerous. Like, when I saw early ACDC, yeah. you're like, yeah. there, there's a, yeah. an attraction and a repulsion. Like, yeah. you're like, there's something wrong here. I'm yeah. not safe. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> but the music is so good, you can't help being drawn to that cold or the warm dark center. I, th I feel like the Stones were the same thing. They were the dirty bad boys of the English invasion. And let's be honest, man, the people who've been drawn to rock and roll their whole life, you want a little bit of that dirt on your hands, don't you? Um, and more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want, you know, the, the Beatles are great. Uh, of course. Know, they're great. And, uh, and, and they were cute, and they were funny, and they were, you know, mom and dad liked them. But mom and even dad mom did and not like who, the Stones. You know, even the mom and dads who were bummed out about the Beatles, like, well, these young boys could really use a haircut. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> right. But they were they were pleasant, especially early on, and they were yeah. charming. The Stones were dirty and dangerous from the get. Yeah. The, he, these were some... Um, the thing about the Stones with me uh, was, uh, and I'm going to, you know, I'm very happily and proud to wear my influences on my sleeve. Sure. It was Keith Richards that 
really, he's my main man and my main influence. But the Stones came out and it was dirty, it was raw, and it was sexy. And as far as I'm concerned, that sexy component it plays a big part in rock and roll for me. That's what now, rock and roll means. I mean, rock and roll is groove, and part of that groove is sex. And I think that's the thing that always sort of freaked me out about early ACDC. You look at Bon Scott, and you're like, that's not a handsome man. But somehow... <laughs> He's fucking sexy. Yeah. And the same thing with the Rolling Stones. I mean, sex is part of the early appeal, especially when rock and roll got darker and dirtier. And still is even today. Although I don't see it uh, being as... Uh, flaunted as much. Not as, not all over, but, but I promise you right now, any Queens of the Stone Age record you listen to, if you allow sex to seep into your mind, it's not dead yet, and it's not what it once was, no, but I, it does still exist. It does. Uh, but what I'm saying, back at that time, um, you know, uh, you know, I, as a, being an aspiring rock and roller, I mean, the Stones really, they really uh, hit all the right buttons for me. They, you know, um, and um, Keith Richards was just that, uh, just that total guitar influence for me. I liked, um, and as I grew up listening to Chuck Berry and, and all those Bo Diddley and stuff like that. I he when that first Stones album came out, I did go back and revisit all that stuff. He kind of also uh, embedded that stuff in in me as a guitar player and stuff. But I remember very vividly sitting in my parents' basement in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, listening to the first Rolling Stones album, England's newest hitmakers, trying my best. My first song I think I learned to play was "Tell Me," and then there was I was trying to learn the lead guitar part on a. Uh, instrumental song off the first album called Now I've Got a Witness. I remember sitting hunched over with my guitar mm. um, trying to learn these songs. And that 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 was it for me. That first Stones album is like, it was all over. There was nothing. Let's It was, let's go. And you've spent your, much like somebody who takes heroin only once, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to get back to that moment <laughs> and trying to reenact that thing right there. Before we go any further, we need to get another song. We've been talking for too long here, and you've picked a song by the Stones. Tell you, me why you picked this one. Because this song to me really is the epitome of what rock and roll is. Should be, could be, and I, this, you know, I was, I love the Stones before this song, but this song, um, when you take all elements of what makes a great rock and roll song, this has it. Now, the unique thing is for me as a guitar player is also the riffage. When that intro starts, that's Keith Richards at his most iconic riffing riffage best. Um, and this is when he starts to utilize his five string open tuning and the thing to notice here also is the groove, the bass between the bass and the drums. The simplicity of it uh, just uh, it, it's so powerful. And you just take great words and a great chorus. It just doesn't get any better. This, to me, is the epitome of rock and roll.
You know, Robert, you said something very interesting to me. Um, you know, you come from the standpoint of a guy who wants to sing, who wants to write the song, who hears the melody in their head, who plays the guitar. But you said something very generous, and I think anybody who is able to exist in a band long term has to recognize. You talked about the subtle, even simple interplay of the bass and drums, right? The rhythm section makes a great deal of difference, which is where I default back to ACDC again, right? right. Everyone talks about Angus Young, schoolboy outfit, the, sure. the crazy guitar machinations, sure. and whether it's Bon Scott or Brian Johnson up front. Malcolm Young, his younger brother, may he rest in peace, laid down the rhythm guitar as good as anyone I've ever heard in sure. my entire life without that bedrock or Phil Rudd on the drums. Right. Even if it wasn't fancy, even if it wasn't dressy, it, it, it defined, without it, there's no room to put the ornamentation on top if you don't have the foundation of your house built properly. That's right. And here's the truth right here. Here's the fucking truth. I'm ready. A band is only as good as its drummer. Really? And um, but you, you take, know what you're doing to drummers' egos right now, right? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm listening. I'm no, listening. Please, because please go ahead. It's true. That's that's my truth. A band is only as good as its drummer. And but so let's. But you need that rhythm section. You need that bass player yep. that works with that drummer. That rhythm section. If you don't got that solid rhythm section, forget it. Now, then you throw in the rhythm guitar on top of that, right. which. Also, Keith Richards is a great rhythm guitarist. Yep. Also, his riffs, his iconic intros are more like a rhythmic thing than, you know, a lead thing, you know. So, but I can't emphasize or express enough how important it is to have that solid rhythm, that bass and drums. Now, in a song like Jumpin' Jack Flash, yeah. it's very simple, but it's very driving and mm -hmm. it's very powerful. And Keith Richards plays the bass on that. And it's a very, you know, simple, but the way he's, the riffs and the way he's playing it is attack and phrasing. It's just amazing. And it just never fails to have a spark shoot from my heart every time <laughs> I hear it. You and were air drumming the entire time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it never felt. I'm getting sweaty now. So, uh, because now, fucking amateur hours yeah. over, dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, amateur. I have a phrase that I use called always learning. When I get to listen to people who know what the <laughs> fuck they're talking about and who know and have not only know what they're talking about, but have lived the life, I get excited. Before we continue with Robert Wilkinson, yes. I do want to check in with my friend Sean Bernard because the sparks fly from my heart when I hear Sean talk about real estate. Oh, there's nothing that just... Wow, that's pretty incredible. And I don't, I don't mean to throw you out there like that. That was a terrible, <laughs> no, terrible intro. But Sean, it. in addition to being my friend and business partner and producer of this fine podcast and co-host, is also a realtor for Edina Realty 50th in France. And I know it's been tumultuous. For a while, things were nuts. Now they're less nuts, but things are still... It, there have been worse times to buy or sell, right? There absolutely have been. You know, Robert, when I was five years old, I said to myself, someday, oh my God, I'm going to sell rectangles. <laughs> That's what awesome. I really... I mean, they, they maybe a trapezoid. You never yeah. know when people get creative. Yep. But I'm going to sell people boxes to live in. That's what I'm going to do. Exactly. You're <laughs> like the Angus Young, except without the schoolboy outfit of local realtors that's exactly what that's what i want to be known in between for. every sales you you run backstage to grab some fresh fresh oxygen off the tank <laughs> and then you get back out there and you're right at it again 
I got to mention this. So our friends at the Star Tribune uh, dropped an article today about renting versus buying, just saying it's a horrible time to buy. You should rent, which I think is ridiculous. It's like, a horrible time to rent. It's been a well, horrible time to rent for five years. Because it costs you, It's that's 100% interest. I was going like, to say, if, if you rent, your, and again, if you can only rent and you don't have the yeah, wherewithal to it. do it. I totally get it. You can rent, but like yeah. back in the early 80s when I was renting, with three other guys, and it cost me $165 I mean. a month, yeah. that was a great time to rent. Now, if you want to get even a modest apartment for $2,200 a month, put that into a freaking house. Well, yeah, it all depends on your situation, like you said. What I can do is actually do an analysis of what it would look like if you were to buy versus rent. I can right. actually show you the comparison of what your monthlies will be. Um, I'm not a tax professional, but I can certainly show you kind of estimates of what your tax benefits will be owning versus renting. Um, the rates are still decent. They're up. Yeah, they're up. But, you know, the rates go up and down, and that's just part of the deal. So I'm still uh, continuing to do what I uh, started at the beginning of the p- pandemic. A portion of every buy and sell goes to a local uh, artist or musician. Of the buyer or seller's choice, Yeah, correct? they actually get to choose. And if they just can't think of a band, I've got about 40 now that have said they'd gladly take a donation. And likely more. Yeah, exactly right. right. So it's funny how people come out of the woodwork with that stuff. Oh, hey, by the way, yeah, no, if I mean, if they're looking for someone to donate to, I Just so you know. But I, lo- I love that it's, it goes back to my core values and what I believe in. And music uh, probably saved my life, I would say. Mm. Uh, it just meant so much to my spirituality and who I am as a person. So it's a little way to give back. 612-859-2594. That number is also textable. So, Robert, you grow up, and you're in Iowa, and at some point, you go to the bright lights and big city of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and you decide, I'm going to be a fucking rock star, and here's the difference between you and 99.2% of the people who make that choice. You did it. How did the Flaming O's come to be? Well, um, it all started, the Flaming O's uh, came along a little bit later in in my own personal career. Mm -hmm. Uh, When my stepdad threw me out of the house uh, after I graduated from high school, I moved in with the drummer Bob Mead, who I played with for over 40 uh, 40 years and stuff. And we started, interestingly enough, um, we had a little three-piece power pop band, um, and we actually was writing some material and doing some Stones and MC5 and stuff. What was the name of this band? Um, Well... Um, we didn't have a name. Oh. I had met a guy. We we started making connections locally. I met a guy named Lonnie Knight, mm-hmm. who had a guy who had a band named uh, Joker's Wild in the sixties, which mm-hmm. I used to go see as a teenager in local clubs. And then it turned into Flash Tuesday, uh, kind of a three piece power blues group like Cream. Anyway, there was a booking agent, David Anthony, uh, David Anthony Productions. Uh, we. As we made contact with Lonnie and David Anthony, Lonnie said, Flash Tuesday's going to break up. Do you want to take over? We have some gigs to fulfill. Do you want to take over and fulfill the gigs? And we said yes. And that was really what we started doing was uh, we took over. uh, We just had the name, and this was very brief, uh, to fulfill the gigs that were contracted. So um, we'd be playing out in some rural ballroom and uh, that they were popular at, people would be going coming up to us and go, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> you know, as, as we're doing, as we're doing, nice, you know. And you yeah, know, it was okay. Happen. Like once again, it was a brief stint doing that. Um, we, I went on to form a band called Prodigy with uh, a great guy, Mickey Coet, uh, Tom Bresney on keyboards, uh, Bobby Mead on drums, and that the incarnation of that band changed over the years. Um, 
What did that band sound like? I mean, like, were you doing covers? Were you doing originals? We were doing both. We were doing, we were playing four, four nights a week, doing four sets a night. So you, wow. had, to, you had to do covers. You played oh, yeah. from nine to one. I remember Ooh. old days where, like, yeah, there were multiple sets or even multiple yeah. shows sometimes. No. But four sets a night, I mean, that's that's like going to, a like, a, a craftsman's job. That's, that, that's different than being a musician. We did that for many years. And wow. that's how we established our musical identity. That's how you that's, get good, too, That's though, how right? you get really fucking good, right? <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, amateur hour is fucking over right now. Uh, but that's over the years of doing that. Yeah, yeah. That's how you hone your skills, your chops, your stage, uh, you know, how you work at, work the stage and everything like that. Well, there's that old adage or cliche that in order to become expert at anything you want to do, you have to put 10,000 hours yep. in, right? And I don't know if that's an accurate number, and I'm sure it varies from craft to, you know, focus or yeah. to whatever. But I mean... This is how you get good. You work at it four nights a week, four hours each one of those nights. Yeah. I mean, you can't yeah. help but learn no. what it's like to be on stage, what yeah. it's like to interact with the crowd. Right. Maybe there's 10 people there. Yeah. Maybe there are 1,000 people there. Yeah. All of those things matter in your growth as an artist. Absolutely. And, and, and as you continue working with people, you develop this chemistry. You develop all these dynamics that make you a good band and stuff. And if you're, if you're authentic, your heart is true and your aim is true, then, you know, things are going to work out. You can't go into this business though, with a thin skin and, (laughs) and, and you can't go into this business and, and people, you're going to get, people will tell you no a lot and you can't go into this business. I mean, uh, weak need, it's not for the weak need or faint of heart. You, you come in here and you know, let's let's get going and let's do this shit. One know? of the most unlikely inspirational quotes I ever heard about being in rock and roll comes from none other than Bon Jovi. It was right when they crossed over in the mid eighties. Yeah. And Bon Jovi at one point is getting interviewed and he looks at the camera and he was very sincere and stared right into the heart of the camera and he said, Anybody can be a rock star, but if you want to take one hour one minute of any day off in doing this, you are never going to make it. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, there's the breaks, right? And there, you yeah. know, there's writing songs and there's yeah. talent that goes along with it. Yeah. But the, that's kind of a, an extension of the philosophy you're talking about. If you want a day off, if yeah. you're desperate for a vacation, you should probably figure out something else to do. Yeah. We lived it though. Yeah. You know, we, that's what we were. It's in our DNA. It's mm-hmm. in our genes. Every day that we weren't playing, we were still, there was some still type of form of music going on, whether we were just sitting, hanging out, you know, smoking weed and listening to stuff right. or p- rehearsing all the time. And, um, you know, so things, you know, that's how you do it. I mean, we were committed and it was our life and it still is mine. Exactly. Um, and, you, you know, you just don't stop. It's uh, there's there's no you don't get to a plateau and right. stop and go. I've made it or whatever. Here we it's, are. It's always everything's finished. <laughs> it's always a continuous evolving and growing and just playing. You know, that's what's in it's in my it's in my DNA. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I say, well, I can't stop. There's no way I'm going to do that. But to get back to, you know, the question about the evolving of the bands, I, I had a band prodigy mid 70s that some guys left, we changed over to Flamingo. Mm -hmm. And right at that time, you can see in uh, Jay's documentary, 
or Jay's Longhorn, the documentary mm-hmm. on Amazon Prime. Um, Which, by the way, every single person who cares at all about Minneapolis yes, music history should watch because yep. I I just missed that era. I yeah. was a little too young. Yeah. But to, and I, of course, heard the stories and the legends forever. Oh, I loved it. But I, yeah. I mean, like, you know, that. And it was Uncle Sam's for, I mean, th- that era yeah. I just missed. Yeah. And it must have been heaven because it was all happening. It was palpable. It was in the air. The energy was in the air. We all knew needed a place and you you know i'm I'm just going over that what we is already said in the documentary but there was some original music starting to break out and not just here but in new york you had the cbgb's the punk Mm -hmm. new wave movement and here um we were all looking for a place to play uh and i remember we it kind of started at the blitz bar down uh under this strip joint uh us suicide commandos courtesy thumbs yeah. up um those were kind of the uh, you know the three bands at the time i remember but uh we then we moved over to the longhorn this and this was 77 i think 78 and you're uh, flamingo at this and point we're right we're flamingo at this point right. we're a five piece with uh with yeah Johnny Ray was playing guitar and this was this band yeah this was it was happening we could feel it um we it everything just fell into place we had a meeting uh all the right people were there the venue i mean you know we eventually crossed over from the Blitz to the Longhorn. Flamingo was the first band to play the Longhorn in June, I think, of 77, 78. My timeline's a little off. It might have been 78. Um, um, And then uh, Johnny Ray left uh, to go play with Jack Lee of the Nerves out in California. Hmm. Jack Lee wrote Hanging on the Telephone. He absolutely did. Uh, He wrote some other pretty great songs as well. And they had played at the Longhorn stuff. And that was good. You know, we wish Johnny... Still in touch with Johnny Ray. He's an awesome singer-songwriter himself. And it was not a bad breakup. Uh, We always wish each other well and send each other off with hugs and love and things like that. So it was good. We were a four-piece. We met people who, with the label, we um, changed the name to The Flaming Nose around uh, 79, put out our first album in eighty. Onward and Upward, and uh, there we go. Well, and the first album, so the first album has um, I Remember Romance on it, right? right? Which, to me, is one of the... The Upper Midwest has a long and proud and powerful tradition of power pop, right? And I would argue, you know, if you include Chicago and larger Illinois in general with what was happening up here, I think this was... I mean, there was obviously excitement on both coasts, Mm -hmm. right? But considering how we're still considered flyover country, back then, it was almost... Unless people had toured through here or unless unless they'd been part of the scene in some way or another, this was considered a non-factor. I believe that the Upper Midwestern power pop game still continues to inform the way power pop sounds around this country and maybe even beyond. Yeah, it's, you know, once, you know, once the Longhorn opened up and stuff, um, you know, um, I, I that changed the whole dynamic. That changed, you know, this city started getting some credibility mm-hmm. um, because... All the bands, like, say, from England, Elvis Costello, we opened for Elvis Costello. Mm, right. um, we opened for Blondie, Talking Heads, B-52s. These wow. bands, so when they're coming out on their very first tours across America, right. Minneapolis and the Longhorn is a stop. And this is, like, these are these young upcoming bands just starting out. Uh, and uh, so, we, we, you know, we did the B-52s. Talking Heads, uh, uh, the only that's, ones. That's open what, for the only oh. ones, which was a huge, huge night for us. You want to talk about power pop? Yeah, right. And um, it's um, yeah. So um, so this 
this as as the bands came through town, word got out. And, you know, um, a lot of really great bands came through town and stopped at the Longhorn. And our credibility as a music scene and stuff started building. And, um, yeah, it's still a very powerful um, scene. And it's still a very, uh, yeah, it's just great. It's a, it's a, it's a um, destination. Uh, it's a destination for a lot of bands out there uh, to come here and for people, artists to move here. To become a part of it too, and never probably a greater time than in the mid '80s when we finally get to sort of that sort of um, critical mass, that boiling point that happened right there. Before we talk more with Robert Wilkinson, I don't like to go too long without a song. You picked a number one here, another one here, and you've picked my single favorite artist of all time. But what I want to know is not only why you like this guy, but why this song in particular. Sure. Um, I picked. Uh, David Bowie, mm. Heroes, um, because um, I mean it's it's an un, it's it's an unassailable masterpiece. But why this particular track, right? Because here? it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about this song, um, um, you know, David Bowie. One of the reasons why I love David Bowie so much um, is because he taught us that there's no right or wrong way to write a song. He taught us there's no right or wrong way to be any kind of gender you want. He taught us so much. And go ahead. Let it out, man. Let it out. I, <laughs> I, 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 I I've, cried, I've cried on this show no, oh, 50 times. Like, at least. I, I could give a fuck if I'm, you know, <laughs> I know I'm I just could, letting you know. Let it out, man. Let it even out. Even when I still talk about music, I can get very uh, emotional. Well, and thank that's, God. That's very good. Yeah. Happy to show you my heart. But the thing is, I still get moved by the power of music and even mm-hmm. talking about it. So this song, for so many reasons, to me personally, is just an anthem. It's, a, it's, it's one that stands out. You know, he was so original and so he taught us um, so much how to be different and how right that was to be different and he gave people a soft spot to land, man. Think about all the weirdos, the freaks, Absolutely. the outsiders, the outliers, yeah. and suddenly they saw David Bowie front and center. Yeah. And suddenly you're like, holy yeah. fuck, I'm not alone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So there's that God aspect. It, and just, yeah, my pleasure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but not only that, I remember listening to Hunky Dory and going, and listening to these kind of more story-like songs yeah. that had never been written before, like songs like Quicksand, yeah. the Bewley Brothers. Oh, there's a thing called Eight Line Poem. Yeah. And then a song to Bob Dylan. I'm like going, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah. And I was just, there was, you could feel it coming with Man Who Sold the World. Mm-hmm. But Hunky Dory mm-hmm. was just like, oh my God. It's my favorite there Bowie record. something, something really unusually, uh, just fantastic going on here. And then he went on to, of course, just prove, holy shit, this is like, wh- what? who is this guy? Um, <laughs> the early stuff, of course, the iconic stuff, and Diamond Dogs, oh my God. But then when you come to the Low, the trilogy, the Berlin trilogy, yep. starting with Low, oh my God, what is, how is he doing this? What is he doing? He changed everything, the way songs are written, the dynamics of how albums are put together, and then you have this song, Heroes. And I was a long fan, a big fan of Bowie before Heroes, but out of, the, you know, this is just the one that 
to me is, I mean, I could pick 10 more, but this is the one that just is like, oh my God, what, what a beautiful, majestic anthem, and how relevant is it today? Yeah.
Robert, you mentioned something very interesting about how that Berlin trilogy by Bowie sort of changed the nature of how we understood songwriting went. I've read two different biographies about Bowie in that era, and what still continues to boggle my mind, let's take a song like that, as iconic and anthemic as that, right? Right. All of the music was recorded weeks before he ever gave a thought to the words, not just on that song, but on every song. It was done. It was mixed. It was almost mastered. And then he decided... When you think about the spirituality of that song, the intensity, the personal nature of that song, to think that it didn't come lyrics first to me, and again, I'm no songwriter, but it boggles my freaking mind <laughs> to think, I mean, he, he'd have Robert Frick come in and he'd say, yeah. just play whatever you want. Yeah. And he'd let Robert take two, three takes. Yeah. He'd be like, perfect. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. And like, they would put these songs together. So that song was complete before a single lyric was written. Yeah. That's a mind bender. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that. That's interesting. Um, that doesn't, that's not too uncommon though, actually in the recording process where an artist might have the music first Mm -hmm. and the lyrics come later. Now, um, you know, to break that song down, I mean, it's anthemic and it's spiritual and stuff. Totally agreed. But it's also just a very simple, beautiful love song. True. And he was inspired by watching these lovers meet. Uh, by the Berlin Wall and stuff. And mm-hmm. once again, I suspect, I couldn't know, but, uh, you know, once those first couple lines come, I'm sure he was probably... It all tumbled know, out. Yeah, but... Well, and that, if I'm not mistaken, was, one uh, of those lovers was somebody, who Tony Visconti, who yes. was very much involved with his Berlin-era production. Yes, right. and who I'm friends with on Facebook. I'm uh, sorry, you, you, you just pal- <laughs> That's cool. Okay, here we go. Get, deal. Sean, get out the broom. The name-dropping has begun, all right? Well, he hasn't <laughs> even mentioned that he met him. I was going to say, you've met uh, David Bowie. I did, in uh, 1974. As we were starting, um, this was the band Prodigy. As we were starting to make some headway in the music scene, mm-hmm. we were starting to meet people in with production companies etc booking agents etc um we met a guy uh this kid came out to us our show and said you want to meet this guy uh who runs a a production company called gem g-e-m productions Mm -hmm. and we met him and he's an awesome dude his name was don powell and don powell as in our in our conversation said oh yeah i used to work with bowie Back in England, uh, before he made it big and stuff, uh, and um, he said that I used to work with him in a management capacity, um, and uh, and we thought, well, that's cool, but this is kind of strange. Don Powell also had a used car empire here in the Midwest, right? And I'm thinking at the time, um, I'm kind of wondering how this guy worked with Bowie, who lives here in the Midwest, right. with a used car empire. Mm-hmm. So you know, as as time went by. Um, um, and Bowie was coming to town. Um, uh, it was October 4th or 5th of 74, his first time coming here. He had taken a break from the Diamond Dogs tour. I, I was hoping it was going to be Diamond Dogs because I love that album. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, but he took a break and he came here to the St. Paul Civic Center, uh, October 4th or 5th, 74. Um, and w- in the meantime, what had happened was as we had met Don Powell and stuff, time had gone by. Um, as Bowie was coming to the show, in the in in my mailbox came a letter, and in the uh, return address was Gem Productions. I opened up the envelope, and I had two comp tickets to the show and an invitation to the after party afterwards, wow. which was going to be yeah. held out in a mansion in Minnetonka. You don't say. Um, so <laughs> uh, we went to the show. We had great seats. I mean, uh, apparently, obviously, and I, Don. 
did, <laughs> and he had some connections. Right. Had some connections yeah, with yeah. Bowie. This arrives in the mail. We go to the show. It's it opens. It's his start of his uh, uh, soul period. His young Americans period. Right. And he had right. uh, this uh, uh, great band. You know, Luther Vandross was one of his backup singers, and which stuff. is still yeah. crazy to think about. Uh, yeah, just amazing. It, and but he 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 was doing this stuff, and you can find the set list. Just Google Bowie's set list in '74, and you can. It's an. It was an amazing show. Of course, we went out. We went out to this uh, mansion after the show, uh, and we walked in, and we weren't sure, you know, if <laughs> Bowie was going to show yeah. up or not, but. Uh, we walked in and there was a buffet of soul food and there were some bad members hanging out. So we walked in down through the basement or whatever. There's a sitting room, people are milling about. And then there's an indoor swimming pool in this place. And I walked down there and there's David Bowie and there's Ava Cherry, one of his backup singers. And I literally bought an Ava Cherry record yeah, yesterday at the record store I worked at. <laughs> Young disco diva, yeah. very short hair, yeah. an incredible yeah. look. And Bowie was her first real true proponent style her style was unbelievable i can't they, yeah. they were just hanging in the pool together were well they? they were sitting in chairs by the pool uh-huh. and there was a chair in between them and of course my <laughs> little ass had to go over there and sit down right between them well why wouldn't you um between them <laughs> i sat i that's, sat between that's ballsy that I, is ballsy well you know uh uh, let it be said, you, probably if you're going to be in rock and roll, you might need a little swagger here and there. Uh, so, a little. <laughs> well, I, so so I, I, I consider myself to be pretty fearless. So, um, and that's another thing uh, you, that will help you in rock and roll. Well, and not music. just in rock and roll, in life. Now, nobody yeah. likes a jackass, but everybody <laughs> likes someone who brings a little confidence to the situation or the room or whatever. There's a difference between self-confidence and believing in yourself and ego. Yeah. And I've never, I don't think of anything. I, I try to stay away from the ego aspect of it. But there's nothing wrong with anybody having self-confidence sure. and believing in yourself. Well, um, but it's, a, it's an infectious quality, right? If it comes across the right way if people are like this guy knows or woman or whoever this person yeah. knows who that what they're talking about plus they're interesting and they're fun to be around you have to bring a little of that to the situation if you want to succeed in whatever you want to do one would hope so i mean you know one i mean for myself it's just i try to be as authentic as i can and i try to spread the love and the light and the good vibes uh these days and uh, it's a lot different but to just finish up this bowie story oh, yeah. um i got to sit and chat with him for about 20 minutes i sat between him and david cherry and during that time that i was able to sit and chat with him and believe me at this point in time i'm like this is 74 i'm like the hugest fanboy <laughs> yeah. ever I'm, i get it i'm completely if you think he's beautiful in pictures, you should see him in person because I was completely mesmerized. He was so beautiful. But we managed to talk about art and music. Of course, none of the details I can remember. Of course. Because I had had a few beverages and things. Well, and Bowie uh, probably wouldn't remember things. even if you were fascinating because he was also in his cups and up to his teeth in it in those days as well. He had started his uh, this aspect of his career where he was 
indulging a little bit. I'm not, I don't think I'm saying anything inappropriate here because he himself had admitted. The story's uh, well told. Yeah. Everyone, even so, he admits that by the time Station to Station came around, yeah. it's the one record he has no recollection of even being in the studio for yeah. because he was so ganked out on right. coke and booze. So Absolutely. No, th- this is a well-documented yeah. part of the story. Yes. So at this point in time, but we did have a conversation uh, we talked about art and music, and at, at one point, his wife, Angie, flitted behind me. She was kind of fluttering around the party. She flitted up behind me, put her hands on my shoulder, leaned over to the boy, and said, he looks a bit like Iggy Pop, don't you think? <laughs> and I, and I, of course, Fabulous. that was, you know, yeah, to yeah. me, Obviously. this upcoming, you know, No, you were probably levitating shit, after you know, that. I'm like yeah. going, yeah, well, yeah, all right, do. that's I do cool. Look like I'll, fucking Iggy Pop. I'll take you got that. that, right, bitch? So after about twenty <laughs> minutes, um, and of course, I'm also mesmerized by Ava Cherry because she's oh. just absolutely beautiful. I'm going to show you that record when we walk outside. Yeah. It's in my car right yeah. now. So in any case, I got to meet him. Uh, it was amazing. Um, I he after about twenty minutes, he had he got up and and went to go do something behind closed doors, and that's fine. At the end of the uh, at, when I was. Uh, so we hung around a little bit more, and then I didn't see him again after that. Uh, and as I left the party, I went up uh, in the driveway and threw up in the bushes. <laughs> nice. So, Robert Wilkinson, uh, before we say our farewells, unfortunately, because this has been such a fascinating conversation, I have not left any. We're well over time right now. <laughs> I have not left anywhere near enough time to talk about the modern era or what you're up to, but we will get to it. Give me one moment here. Before we go, a quick thanks again to Smart Start MN. A very sincere thanks to Moxie Wealth Management as well. To all of our Patreon members, we did just have a great event, but we're going to have another one. Yep, I've had three or four it. people re- reach out to me and they're like well when's it going to be i'm like pre-holidays trust me just yep. you know don't hold your breath but it's coming i we, we, so we will be on that and we've had a few new patreon members c- jump on board if you'd like to be a continuing supporter at any amount dollar a month five thousand dollars a month is that too much to ask <laughs> uh, whatever you whatever you're comfortable with you join us over at patreon slash brian oak show and we will make sure that you are part of everything we do coming forward in fact if you join at the five thousand dollar a month level you can have a show once a month that seem reasonable? Yep, and some Ginsu knives. We're, we're for sale, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, but can this thing really cut through a can? Um, <laughs> Sean, thank you very much as well. Thank so, you. Robert, unfortunately, so much of the story was so interesting, and I couldn't stop listening, or sh- I couldn't shut myself up either. We didn't get to talk much about... Oh, also, i got to thank the good people at AudioQuip. Oh, Literally, absolutely. everyone who's ever been on board, anybody who's ever shared, listened, amplified. This is fun for us to do. These stories are important to be told, and what's great about them is they exist in perpetuity, right? Like this interview, I believe that alien archaeologists 5,000 years from now will find this. will be like, the fuck was this flyover corn country like? <laughs> and they'll listen to this and be like, oh, that might have been all right. Click, 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 or whatever whatever their language sounds like. We I don't have know. to have you back, Robert, because there's yes. so much left to be told. So yes. much. Yeah. I have to ask one thing of you guys before we go. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Please let me take a minute to... Uh, put out some uh, information in regards to I have an album that I made in 1991 for Blackberry Wave Records. Go on. For, uh, Mike Owens uh, has remixed it. We've pulled it down off the shelf from 91. It's the Robert Wilkinson band that I had at the mm. time. And uh, Mike Owens remixed it and we're getting ready to send it off to Abbey Road to be mastered. Wow. And it'll Abbey be Road, London, Abbey Road Studios. Abbey Road Beatles where they wear the, Liverpool, where they wear the yeah. white lab coats and whatnot. <laughs> where they will be mastering my album that will be coming out uh, in a few months. Let we me ask, 
Okay, go ahead. I'm yeah, just... we don't have a we don't have a timeline. Once again, uh, it's rem- uh, we it's remixed. We're sending it to Abbey Road to be remastered. It's a album that I recorded in '91. It's called Lost and Found, mm-hmm. and it'll be coming out in a few months. And uh, I just wanted to mention that. Thank awesome. you. No, no, we're going to mention a little bit more than that. I mean, we do have to cut it short, but I yes. I, but why? And this this always matters to me because a lot of things sit on the shelf for a long time, and yes. sometimes they make sense. Why did this sit on the shelf for more than thirty years before you decided to make? it a thing well you know mike owens who ran blackberry way there was a lot of changes and things that have happened over the years with it with the label right and uh mike has uh you know there's different reasons various reasons of which i don't know all of but it's okay um um you know because that's the way it is sometimes yeah um but the thing is it's been dusted off and the most important aspect of what's going on with it is it, it will be coming out. I don't know all the exact reasons why it sat for so long. That's but, fine, but I mean, yeah. it, it must be good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have allowed it to be dusted off and be going through the effort of sending it off to Abbey Road Studios. I, I'm very proud of the album, and I think I had a good run of writing songs. Yeah. But I started kind of uh, encouraging Mike over the past year to let's try and get this out and get it going. And he has started with his label. He still has Blackberry Way, but it's not like the recording studio, et right, cetera. Right. But what he started doing is reissuing some of that stuff, and now we are at the point where we are going to get this out. And it's very exciting. It's a pretty solid album, and I'm very proud of it. Digging into the rock. Robert Wilkinson Archive. So, Sean was right. We do have to have you back because we barely got to talk about anything even vaguely modern era, and I would really like to do that very much at some point in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, if people want to stay on top of what you're doing, what your music is, where you're going to be performing, what's happening with you, you must have some sort of online ground zero. Is there a robertwilkinson.com? Well, uh, you know, not at this point there's not, but there's flaminos.com, you know, and that's the band website. I don't is it flaming or flamin? Flamin, F L A M I N O H S. Together, flaming. Just want to make sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not really. I don't have a lot of uh, social media platforms myself. I'm just on Facebook, but all the stuff is posted. All events are posted, and I engage, and I'm happy to engage with people if they want to know something. And I'm also happy to engage with people if they want to message me or text me about anything too. So, but at this point in time, as I've retired now, and I have a little more time i'm going to try and build my own website okay and to because i'm going to get back into visual art and i've got more music coming other than this other album too i'm going to start recording another album at some point well and that's the whole thing we didn't get to talk about your retirement we didn't get to talk about your visual (laughs) art we didn't get to talk about the music you're working on now yeah so promise me you'll come back i would love to and this has been a lot of fun so thank you for having me dude this was thrilling for me this was fantastic and stories i've never heard up to and including Getting yeah. your shoulders rubbed by David Bowie's wife Angie. I, I, this is this is weirdness in in the best possible way. But we do have to cut it short. Sean, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. All right, and thank you, Robert, Robert, thank you very much. My and honor. As we head into the final song, because every guest has to pick three songs. Tell me about this one. I've heard that the Flaming O's were are, are rather a popular band. Um, yeah, we do okay for a bunch of kids. You know, uh, it's not. You know, we're, we're getting by. You know, uh, it's all right. Yeah, well, yeah, we're kicking a bit of ass, and uh, it's all good. Uh, Tell me about this song. Yeah, yeah. Let me just say, you don't want to follow us. Um, let's. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> um, Big love is what I feel. Is what I wrote this song about. It's what I extend to everybody in my in my orbit. Uh, everybody out there. Uh, everybody in Facebook land, social media land. We stay connected. We are community. I 
I am with everybody in solidarity and support, and I have nothing but big love for you all. Sounds very much like the philosophy of the show. Thank you very much, Robert. My honor.